0: Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I am privileged to have a Northwest author that I've heard about through some of my friends, Jeff Stuckey, like cookie. (laughs) So Jeff, say hi to um, our listeners.
1: Hello, listeners.
0: So, Jeff, let's just jump right in and share with us, first off, the listeners and myself, what state in the Pacific Northwest you reside in?
1: I currently live in Oregon in the city of Portland.
0: Ah, one of my favorite cities in the whole world. Everybody knows that they follow my podcast or my Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. I love Portland. <laughs> yeah, so not very far away from it. So fantastic. Um, and so, let uh, so Jeff, I like to have our authors kind of share a little bit about themselves and the writing journey. So before you um, share about your work a little bit, tell us... Um, did you have a Do you have a day job? Or are you currently retired and living the wonderful dream of being an author? Tell us a little bit about that history first.
1: I'm currently retired. I started this book uh, twenty years ago when I was still working. Uh, I was working as a cytotechnologist at the time, and um, I had retrained from. The graphic arts, where I had worked for many years as a graphic arts camera operator, and then I decided to retrain in the medical field and uh, studied cytotechnology, which is looking for abnormal cells uh, on microscope Mm -hmm. slides.
0: Well, see, I was just going to ask what that was because I wasn't sure.
1: <laughs> right. Um, a lot of people think, it, it, I'm saying psychology, mm-hmm. but it's C-Y-T-O, cytology, the study of cells. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the main bread and butter for cytotechnologists is uh, screening pap smears, but we also do um, specimens from other body sites. So okay. that was a interesting um interesting career uh for me and, and it uh, contributed a lot to the writing of the book because the main character is a doctor
0: yes I love it and we'll definitely dive into the book reader a uh, listener so hang with me here but I got a few questions now you brought up so that's quite a big departure from graphic design into medical field <laughs> so were you just kind of yes. Looking for a change, you know, you did graphic design with the camera work for long enough that you needed a big change in your life. Is that what you were doing?
1: Well, the uh, career uh, in uh, as a camera uh, operator was becoming obsolete because mm-hmm. of desktop publishing, and I saw the writing on the wall, and I, so I knew I had to uh, find a new um, a new career.
0: Smart man looking at how innovation and technology changes things. So very smart. Good, good. So, um, so moving forward, I also did some reading about you. So you also, uh, so you have, you started on this book, this book series 20 years ago, but had you written other pieces or worked as a writer, um, for yourself before this?
1: I wrote when I was in grade school and in junior high and high school, uh, but I didn't do much writing after that. I I was really obsessed with filmmaking, Mm -hmm. and so in college, that was my main focus, uh, filmmaking and art, and I worked on a number of short films uh, in college and after I left college.
0: Mm -hmm. I love it. I love, I, I strongly believe, you know, the arts are all very much entwined together from writing to filmmaking to dancing to singing. So, so I love, I love your background. It's fabulous. And it does explain a lot to where you're, you go in the history with um, the book series. But let me ask you this question. I'm always curious. When did you know, Jeff, you were an author? Was there an aha moment or did you just grow into it and you realized, Oh, I'm an author.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, I, I, like I said, I was so obsessed with filmmaking for many years. And what happened was I read the book, the color purple by Alice Walker. And I loved the book. Mm -hmm. And then the movie came out and I was extremely disappointed with the movie. It Mm -hmm. left so much out. Um, And I decided at that point that uh, writing and books were a much better medium Mm because it seemed so much fuller to me. Mm -hmm. You can pack more into a a book than you can into a movie in in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's kind of when I started to think about writing. Uh, And then when I turned 50, I decided, okay, I've survived this long I've got this much life experience. I think that I'm entitled to try my hand at writing. And so I decided just to sit down and start writing. I wanted to do memoir and to write about uh, my my dad and about a friend of mine, uh, Jesse Bernstein, uh, who was a Seattle poet who committed suicide mm-hmm. in 1991. Uh, so when I started to write um, this image came to mind um, of these two men uh, necking in a 1920s automobile with a gun underneath the seat of the car. And that image kept haunting me, and I kept coming back to it, and uh, I started trying to figure out who these people were, how did they meet, where did they live, what were their backgrounds, and that's what led me to start writing this novel which uh 20 years later (laughs) turned into three books
0: (laughs) what i love about that story is that the story chose you it came to you and i think that's absolutely powerful um so awesome. I love it. So let's talk just a little bit about your publishing experience. And then we're going to get a lot deeper into the story that you've written in these three books over the 20 years, because you have a lot of history. And And so listeners, you know, I'm writing historical fiction. And Jeff was um, mentioned to me because his books are very, very um, developed through history. story. And, and so I was excited to have him come on so we can talk about that. But um, tell me a little bit about the publishing aspect of it are you self-published independent published or are you with one of the few left publishing houses
1: (laughs) i am uh self-published i went to the willamette writers conference here Mm -hmm. in portland and pitched uh my book to a number of agents and there were uh, there was quite a bit of interest but none of them followed up after I sent them samples of the, the novel. So the, when the uh, 2016 uh, election campaign rolled around and I started to see all of these incredible parallels between what was going on in the 1920s that I had researched so much and what was going on in our political di- di- dialogue today mm-hmm. i decided I-, I wanted to get this book out there right away so mm-hmm. rather than wait until i found an agent and a publisher i just decided to go ahead with um self-publishing mm-hmm. i contacted go ahead
0: no i just said good for you i, I think that's brilliant <laughs> timing is everything right
1: <laughs> right and so I, I knew I would need to find an editor. So I asked a friend, and she put me in touch with Jill Kelly, who um, agreed to edit my book after I told her, sent her a sample, and told her a little bit about it. And uh, she had done some self publishing and she kind of walked me through all of the the different. Things that I had to do in order to get my book self-published
0: Wow, what a wonderful resource to have somebody to help you like that besides the editing process, but the self-publishing process So a little bit about me and the podcast It was developed by my desire to write and publish and I started to do research like a good librarian uh, I started doing research and I found that there was plenty out there and a lot of authors that were already published. And so I started to ask questions. Those questions turned into a podcast. So there we are. And here you are on the podcast. <laughs> so thank Great. you. Great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Let's and and that. That does bring me to the covers. Um, So listeners, while you're listening to the podcast, make sure you go to show notes and click on the link so you can see Jeff's covers of his books. Because you have one aspect that I'm always drawn to being a librarian, a historian, is um, vintage photos. I adore vintage photos. I'm drawn to them. And every time I walk into a vintage um, store, I usually go to vintage photos and I can't help myself, but spend time looking through them. I feel like every photo has a story and I want to bring them all home um, and write their story. So share with me a little bit about the collection that you have on your covers. Um, They're fascinating.
1: Yes. uh, My partner, Ken Barker has been collecting vintage photos for many years. He went to school at Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. And after he completed that course of study, he started uh, collecting old photographs. And so a lot of the ones that uh, are on the covers are from his collection and from other places. And then I've also been posting once a month uh, a new vintage photo um on my website under the mm-hmm. title featured image so that will change every month
0: oh now i'm really intrigued i got to i got to be checking out that every month on your website <laughs> I feel like as an author, I I can't help myself but look at the photos and want to know the stories behind going on in the faces of the photos. So, so it's very intriguing. I have collected my own, and they're in a you know nice spot. And one of these days, I'm going to go back and revisit them and start writing <laughs> off of them. So, I I love that. Very nice. So
1: yeah, that's a great great uh, prompt for writing.
0: Yeah. So Jeff, let's talk about your inspiration for these three books. And you and I discussed an email and um, a little bit before we recorded about the history around all of them. So why don't you share with us what, how it got started, what your inspiration is, and then draw with us some of the parallels that you and I talked about in email um, with current events and history. That's the part about history that I find amazing, is that we often can find parallels from the past.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, well, I've told you about the image that came to me, and I started trying to figure out who these characters were. And I figured since it was the 1920s, I uh, figured that one of them should be a jazz musician because jazz was such an important part of um, that era. And then I, because it's a, I knew it was going to be a gay love story, I wanted one of the characters to be, um, very reputable and, um, have a uh, good standing in the community. And so I decided that he would be a doctor and with my medical background, that sort of seemed a natural thing to choose. And, uh, so I just started writing, uh, trying to figure out where these folks meant and, uh, it came to me that they might have met at a wedding reception. And so that's the first scene in book one, Acquaintance, Mm -hmm. uh, where Jimmy and Carl meet. Um, It takes them a long time to finally get together. Jimmy's very uh, reticent uh, about um, uh, developing the friendship. And Carl, of course, is... is, um, concerned that he's going to scare Jimmy off if he's too aggressive in making a pass. Cause he doesn't know if Jimmy is interested in other men or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a large part of uh, the tension and uh, what's going on in the first book uh, acquaintance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, from then on, I just kept following the story and asking myself, well, what do these people want? What, where are they headed? Um, What are they after? And of course, Jimmy, as a a jazz pianist, um, had a desire to uh, have his musical career blossom. And he felt that the way to do that was to go to Chicago. And so he had dreams of going to Chicago with his band and becoming uh, famous, rich and famous. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, uh, a lot of the jazz musicians from New Orleans had uh, migrated to Chicago. And so there was a, a tremendous uh, blossoming of jazz going on in 1923 in Chicago. So I figured that would be where Jimmy would head. And so that's the the locale of the second book, uh, which is called Chicago Blues and mm-hmm. uh, follows Jimmy's adventures in Chicago.
0: Is it uh, just where he, alone? <laughs> is he all by himself. alone?
1: Uh, no, he... Uh, he he goes to Chicago with his band. He has a five-piece. He's with a five-piece band called the Diggs Monroe Jazz Orchestra.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, while he's in Chicago, he meets up with uh, a sinister mob boss, and oh, uh, late later on with a, uh, a black drag performer who is also a jazz musician and singer.
0: Mm, interesting,
1: and they strike up uh, an affair so that's uh all of that plays out in book two Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and then of course um things do not work out well for Jimmy in Chicago and um this is a bit of a spoiler but in book three (laughs) he returns to to um Portland and the third book which is called Dangerous Medicine follows uh um Carl's struggles with his medical career in Portland in face of uh, a lot of, um, opposition. This is a time when the Ku Klux Klan was, uh, becoming very influential both in Portland across the state and throughout the nation. Uh, the early twenties, uh, had a, a tremendous, uh, burgeoning of the KKK, uh, huge memberships all over the country. Mm. Uh, and the organization was uh, having a, a huge influence on the politics, um, the professions. Uh, they were involved in boycotts of anyone who was not a member of the Klan. So it mm. was a very powerful group at the time. Mm. So Carl was having to deal with that besides a lot of other um forces in society his boss thinks that he should marry and have children and uh, carl's not interested in that at all Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: the the third book um he has to deal with all of that as well as his relationship with jimmy
0: i i love it i love the fact that jimmy goes somewhere else to make it try to make it big and it returns back to the pacific northwest it's my motto that everybody comes back to the pacific northwest (laughs) (laughs) you may start here and think that you're going to leave but there's a draw here and you you come back so um, at least all of my family and friends hear me say that. And I have that experience with my own part. My husband did that. so And he did leave to go make it big in music and came back. And so um, fascinating.
1: Story. Oh, really? He's a musician.
0: Yes, he is. Yes, yeah. So,
1: What, what instrument did he play? He
0: was a drummer, professional drummer. And he went to L.A. for over eight years and did pretty well there. It's part of one of my themes of stories that I'll be working on is, is that whole process of uh, trying to make it big <laughs> and the not so realistic realities of all that <laughs> that goes on with it <laughs> Yeah, right so um let's let's wrap about around just a little bit because i found it fascinating when i was reading a little bit about you and from our friend alan that told me about you i actually didn't i i guess i was unaware that the klu klux klan had such a large presence in the pacific northwest i always just assumed that you know we were very um less presence here so did you find that surprising as you were going through your research and did you feel like oh i dawned on you know grab something this is great for the for the work i'm working on
1: you know i first started hearing about uh, the clan from a friend of mine who wrote an article about them in um, uh, a legal uh, bulletin uh, here in Portland or here in Oregon mm-hmm. and the the stories I, I was hearing were were so juicy I figured these this has to be an aspect of the story
0: <laughs> I love it <laughs> yeah so yeah. So we won't go into all the super juicy details because I want our listeners to find your book and read it. <laughs> that you know, I want to sure. save some some things for them in there. I, but I was I was shocked, and um, one one of the other premises of a work that I have in, my, in the back of my mind is I live in the Longview Kelso area, and our area was started by Robert Arnold. Arnold Long in the early 20s matter of fact my husband and I live in one of the homes that was built in 1924 um, right off by the lake and I've always been intrigued by the history around that time frame of building a city and I always wondered what kind of opposition was going on and Portland would have felt very far away because of the roads and the, the way things were built back then it was not it wouldn't have been a quick trip to Portland in the 20s from my area <laughs> so I can imagine that that region had a little more progressive and I wouldn't say progressive but different aspects going on than our area here did you discover that the clan was involved pretty much everywhere not just in the Portland region but elsewhere
1: yes uh, one of the really interesting articles I found on the web talks about the presumption that the Klan was mostly rural, uneducated people joining up. But Mm -hmm. as it turns out, um, what they discovered from researching uh, a lot of uh, newspaper articles and uh, letters to the editor and that sort of thing, that really it was um, the urban professionals who were sort of driving the Klan and had a lot of influence in the rural areas. Hmm. Um, there's a, a really interesting book by a, a woman who, who um, I, whose name I, I don't have in front of me, but uh, she wrote about the Klan in Tillamook. I think it's called something like Fear and uh, Intolerance in, in uh, Tillamook County or something like that. But she, she talks about the Klan and how remote, just like you're saying with long the long beach area um the the um th- those rural areas were very uh isolated um from the big cities uh even after the railroads um started connecting places it you know and the roads improved it was still uh took a, a while to get to the big city uh but through mail and telephone, and there, there was a lot of travel apparently between, um, between the communities and, and the Klan in Portland, uh, recruited and, and did a lot of outreach um, all over the state. And mm. at the same time, this was going on all over the United States as well.
0: So it would have been incredibly dangerous for your characters to be openly gay at this time. I'm assuming. I can't imagine that it was very friendly <laughs> for them.
1: <laughs> I, ex- exactly, and, and that was another big part of my research. Was I, I started to try and figure out what was it, what would it have been like to be gay in the 1920s, and in the 90s uh, when I was. Starting to work on this, this book, there had been a, an explosion of research into gay history, and that was a big part of, of what I was reading mm-hmm. to prepare for for the book. Uh, Peter Bogue uh, has a book called Same-Sex Affairs, which talks about the history of uh, gays in the Pacific Northwest, and Portland in particular, mm-hmm. Um George Painter has a book out about um, a 1912 sex scandal in Portland, which involved a lot of uh, uh, professional men who were brought up on trial f- with uh, for sodomy laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's been a, a tremendous amount of, of research, um, and and that really contributed to my understanding of what it would have been like back then. One thing that's very interesting is that because, uh, people just were not very cognizant of the fact that people were gay, even back then, Mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of flew under the radar, unless you knew what was going on and and kind of knew the code words. And there were certain dress codes that could clue people into the fact that you were gay. Uh, you probably wouldn't know, Mm. uh, So that was, I thought, was a really interesting aspect. After, uh, during the 20s, uh, uh, Sigmund Freud was very popular then, and Mm -hmm. his popularity made people more aware of the fact that homosexuality existed. And then as you went forward in, in time, in history, more and more people became aware of the fact that people were gay and it became much more dangerous Mm -hmm. uh, to be to be out
0: Mm -hmm. i can certainly see that so let's let me ask you the next question this way if your characters were dropped into the portland scene right now (laughs) with our current um, environment that we have going on politically and and um, just in the stance of where gay rights are now what do you think would be shocking to them being who they were from the 20s if you could just transport them today just for one day to see you know what do you think would surprise them about similarities and differences
1: um well of course they they were familiar with the clan so it Probably wouldn't have surprised them the level of white supremacy and uh, the animosity towards immigration and immigrants uh, Mm -hmm. that exists today, because that was very strong back then. So they would Mm -hmm. have seen a parallel there. I think what they probably would be shocked by is um, one of the problems with being gay. Uh, back in the early part of the century was that there were eugenics laws and there were um, forced sterilization Mm -hmm. procedures for uh, men who were incarcerated in prisons or in mental hospitals um, who were forced uh, to be sterilized. Mm. And those laws were on the books until 1983. And I think our my characters would probably be very surprised that those laws were reversed eventually. And mm-hmm. most importantly, after um, the laws were reversed, it wasn't until 2002 that Governor John Kitzhaber issued a formal apology to all of the more than 2,500 people who mm-hmm. were sterilized during those decades uh, and basically apologized to them for what the state had done to them.
0: Mm, Fascinating. I think it would be very fascinating to have your characters in today's world just to see their reactions. (laughs) Because, you know, from from what you and I talked about, there are some similarities and, and interesting aspects that they could probably, I believe history teaches us so much, but oftentimes I feel like we don't learn from history very well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So why don't you set the stage for your reading? Cause I think now I have piqued the interest of our listeners quite well. So set the stage, tell us the title of the third book that you're going to read for us. Um, and, and share with us, Jeff, the reading and I'll go on mute and I'm curiously going to listen. And then I'll take us out of the box okay. at the end.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, This passage comes from book three of the trilogy, Medicine for the Blues. The third book is called Dangerous Medicine. And as I said, it focuses on uh, Carl Holman's medical career. This uh, passage, I think, pretty well explains um, itself, especially with what we've already talked about in the podcast so far. So I will just begin When Jimmy had gone been gone about a week I got a call from St Mary's Catholic Hospital Dr Osborne wanted help removing a bullet from a man's leg The patient was a bootlegger who had been shot by a rival outfit while making a delivery to a local speakeasy Osborne knew I'd served in the medical corps during the war and had experience with gunshot cases After I removed the bullet and changed back into my street clothes, I was talking with one of the nuns at the nursing station when a tall man in a suit approached us. He introduced himself as Steve Bateson, a vice officer with the local police. After a run-in with MPs in the service, I'd never felt comfortable around policemen, but now I remembered hearing Bateson's name before. He was said to be a member of the KKK. I need to talk to the doc who removed the bullet, he said. That would be me, I said. Your name? Carl Holman? He fixed his cold green eyes on me. Ah, yes. You work with Gowan and Bleecker? I nodded. He looked to be sizing me up for a police crime report. I imagined his description. Caucasian male around 30, dark hair, hazel eyes. Medium build, slightly above average height. I would have thought you'd do the surgery at Lutheran, he said. So that's where I knew the name from. I'd overheard a conversation between him and Dr. Ferguson at the Lutheran Hospital a month or so earlier when he was investigating another shooting. Bateson had asked Ferguson about me, and when Ferguson praised my work, Bateson wanted to know if I was connected to the Catholic Hospital His tone implied a disdain for Catholics. But when Ferguson mentioned that I worked with Gowan, Bateson sounded like he was on familiar terms with Gowan and Bleecker. I had taken that to mean they all knew each other through the clan. The patient was brought in here to St. Mary's straight from the speak, I replied, and Dr. Osborne called me in to help. Bateson stared at me just long enough to make me uneasy and then said, I'll need the bullet for evidence. Sure, Sister Gertrude can show you to Dr. Osborne's office. Bateson gave the nun a derisive glance. I'd rather you did. I smiled and nodded at Sister Gertrude. Follow me, I said, and led him down the hall in silence. I tried to think of something to say, but being alone with him was making me increasingly uncomfortable. After I left him with Dr. Osborne, It occurred to me that I could have opened a conversation by telling Bateson about the operation. As I was preparing to leave the hospital, a familiar face greeted me. Tom Harrison, Harris, my neighbor across the street, was at the nursing station. He smiled at me as he ran his hand through his wiry hair in a futile effort to subdue it. "'Just the man I want to see,' he said. "'The paper told me to get out here pronto.' He adjusted his thick horn-rimmed glasses. I need to find out about this bootlegger who got shot. We want the story for the evening edition. He took out a small notebook and made notes as I summarized what little I knew, including a description of the bulletin ball. Sister Gertrude can give you more information, I said. I went right into surgery when I got here. Dr. Osborne didn't even give me the man's name. After Tom spoke with the nun and made some more notes, I asked if he would walk with me to the parking lot. First, I need to talk with Osborne, he said. I believe he's with Vice Officer Bateson right now. Tom raised his eyebrows. I nodded. Come have a chat with me now before I leave. I have to get back to the clinic. He seemed to understand that I wanted to talk privately, privately, so we went outside to the portico at the front entrance. It was raining hard, and the cool air felt refreshing. The stairs down to the sidewalk glistened with rain, and across the street the leaves on the trees were showing their fall colors as they swayed in the wind. You mentioned Bateson to me a while back, remember? What more can you tell me about him? Well, as I said, he's with the Klan. He seems to have it in for sexual deviance. He's pretty much the one responsible for shutting down Dixon Calder's saloons. I wonder if he's on to me. <laughs> Besides being my neighbor, Tom was an old friend and he knew, knew about my relationship with Jimmy. When I spoke to Bates, Bateson just now, I got a bad feeling. A while back, I overheard a conversation with him and I got the impression that when he heard I worked with Gowan, he figured I was okay. Could be, since they're both clan members, hard to say. But I can tell you this, since you announced your engagement, phony as it is, the neighborhood gossip seems to have died down. You were right about all that. Gowan seems pleased with my engagement, too. I looked out at the rainy street and thought of Jimmy. Rumors about Jimmy and me haven't come up since he isn't around. He's in Chicago now? Well on his way, anyhow. I've been hearing about the gang wars back there. Sounds brutal. Hmm... I glanced at Tom. That's troubling. Anything else I should know? Since you never read the papers, I should tell you about an incident down in the Willamette Valley. Some clansmen abducted a couple of Japanese farmers. They roughed them up and put on a mock hanging just to scare them and then chased them out of town. I was reminded of the time last spring when I went to a rural dance that Jimmy and the band played at the Bisbee Grange outside of Portland. The clan had prevented him from singing because they thought the song lyrics were indecent. Later, on my way home, I'd driven past a group of clansmen in their white hoods harassing a young couple they'd found spooning in a car. Since that alien land law was signed in February, Tom went on, there's been a lot of bad feeling directed against the Mongolian races, especially among the white farmers. Good grief, is my Chinese houseboy in for trouble? Hard to say. You know the Chinese aren't exactly well-liked. There seem to be factions within the clan. Most don't seem to uh, condone violence, but some groups have been thrown off the rolls for vigilante actions. Just then, Bateson emerged from the building. He spotted us at the end of the portico. I felt a chill, but I smiled and tipped my hat. Gateson paused and stared at us as he took out a cigarette and looked up, lit up before proceeding down the stairs to the street. He gets around, Tom said. Since I knew Tom reported on crime, I gathered that they often covered the same incidents. I showed Tom to Osborne's office before driving back to the clinic.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing your story. It's very intriguing and a little bit chilling <laughs> and, um, on, on the whole line of the Ku Klux Klan. But um I do appreciate you being on the podcast. And I do thank you for writing these stories. I think they're very relevant and important for readers to read today. So thank you for being here.
1: My pleasure.
0: And listeners, if you are intrigued by uh, Jeff's books, definitely get onto the show notes, find him, and um, his books are on Amazon.com, and we'll have that link there for you. Um, And then you can find him on Facebook, on Instagram and Twitter, or Facebook, Jeff?
1: Uh, Both, all three.
0: Awesome. We'll find him on there and um, connect with him. So, Jeff, thanks again for being here, and we appreciate it.
1: Okay, thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.